So as Jesus enters Jerusalem and prepares for what his mission was, to be placed on a cross, to be brutally beaten, to be placed there for our sins, he knew the mission that he was on. And today, as we prepare in the weeks to come, next week, Palm Sunday, and the following week, Resurrection Sunday, as we begin to pair our hearts to consider this event, I would say to you, this is the greatest event in the history of the world. Uh, We live in an interesting time where we like to talk about what's the greatest, what's the greatest. I think God may have placed that on the hearts of men to always consider who's the greatest, what's the greatest. Um, It seems like on television there are show after show about what's the greatest this, what's the greatest that. And uh, as we prepare for what we know, as scripture teaches, the greatest event in the history of the world, uh, I I titled this series, The Greatest. What are the greatest things that have happened? How can we look at them? And today we're going to look at the greatest tragedy. What is the greatest tragedy that's happened in the history of the world? Now in sports, they like to talk about the GOAT. How many of you have heard that before? The GOAT, which is a really interesting term. And it stands for the greatest of all time. Now, unfortunately, I think it may mean the actual goat, the animal. (laughs) But the greatest of all time, we want to know the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. And one of the greatest uh, diamonds that we know of is called the Hope Diamond, the Hope Diamond. And it was found in India, and it was found in the Golconda Mines, the diamond mines of Golconda. And there's an interesting story. There was a professor who wanted to study the history of that area. His name was Dr. Russell Conwell. And he took a, a, a tour down the Tigris River to learn the history of that area. And he was told the story of Al-Hafid. Al-Hafid was a farmer that had lived in that area. He had a, a very nice farm and a very nice life. And he was satisfied with his life until, until a Buddhist monk showed up in his area and began to share with them that diamonds had been found in other parts of India and had told them the wealth that you can receive by having a diamond. And Al-Hafid was mesmerized by this story and he wanted to have a diamond. He wanted to be wealthy uh, beyond what he could imagine. And so Al-Hafid decided to sell his farm. He sold his farm and he took that money to travel the world to find diamonds. And so he traveled to all the places that he could get to. And eventually over years and years of looking for diamonds, he ran out of money. And in despair, he took his own life. And so he had set up his whole life to find diamonds, and he never found a single diamond. And he ended in despair. Well, unfortunately for him, the man that had bought his property was watering, taking his camels to get water in this brook. And he looked in the brook, and there was this shiny object within the brook. And he picked up the shiny object, and he took it to his house because he thought it was a, a beautiful rock. And he placed it on his mantle at his house. And his neighbor came by, and he looked at that rock, and he said, Do you know you have a diamond there? And he said, What? He says, Yes, that's a diamond. And the man took it to get inspected. It turned out it was a diamond. And this is the exact location of the Golconda Mines where the Hope Diamond was found. Some of the most famous diamonds in the world come from this diamond mine. And here you have Al-Hafid, who left the very place that had what he was looking for. It was right below his feet. It was at the very place he was, 
he left and ended his life in ruin. If only he would have found what was right there with him all along. See, the greatest tragedy in Alephid's life was that he was deceived. He was deceived. And as we look at the world and we look at our own lives, how many of us have sold our spiritual farm to go look for something? We've sold something in our heart and our life to go look for something that we think will satisfy. I believe God has a lot to say about this. I believe his word has a lot to say about this. And so as we dive into this question, what is the greatest tragedy ever? What is the greatest tragedy ever? Let's see what God has to say about it in his words, and we'll ask him to speak to us now. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, I am grateful for today. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your patience. I am thankful for the joy of the salvation that you bring to us. And Lord, as the world continues to get more chaotic and the world begins to uh, get more upside down, we know that you are the rock. You are steadfast. You are strong. You are worthy of building our lives upon. And so this morning, we want to know what you have to say. We want to hear your words. Uh, We came here to worship you. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, whether that's in our hearts, in our minds, our thoughts. And Lord, whatever that is, that your spirit would speak straight to us. And Lord, I pray right now, whatever distraction there is, whatever thing would pull us away, that you would keep us on your path at this moment, that our hearts and our minds would be focused and in tune to you. Lord, I pray that you would bless the, the, the reading of the words that you've recorded for us to have. And Lord, they would penetrate into both our soul and our spirit and that they would do a mighty work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 19, a part of what Chaz read for us earlier. And uh, just to give you a quick backdrop, as, as you saw in the video, this is the time in, in Jesus' life. He, for about three years, he had been ministering. He'd been healing the sick. He'd been casting out demons. He'd been preaching about what it meant to be right with God, to be blessed. And now he's preparing himself to go. The one reason he came, the reason that God left heaven and came to earth to be a man, was to die on a cross for our sins. He knew his mission. He knew exactly what was going to be happening. He had told his disciples multiple times. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be persecuted, put to death, placed on a cross. I'll be dead for three days and I will rise again. And so he knows exactly what needs to be done. Uh, hundreds of years prior to this, Isaiah had in chapter 53 had, had given a, a clear presentation of what had to be done, what was going to happen. And so this is the account of Jesus entering in Jerusalem. He's on his descent in the valley that leads into Jerusalem, and he can see the whole city, and this is his reaction in John chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. He wept over it. I believe one of the greatest deceptions the enemy has played, placed on us or played on the world is the idea that God is angry, that God is, is hostile towards us. Do you know what God is angry at? He is angry at sin. Do you know what God is hostile toward? He is hostile towards sin. And when we live in an adulterous relationship spiritually with sin, he hates that. But he loves us. 
He loves us. Do you realize when he looked at Jerusalem, he knew he was going into a place where they were going to kill him. They were going to scourge him. They would pull his beard out. They would whip him to mutilate him beyond recognition. He knew that was what was in front of him. And yet he wept from a place of love for them. There is sin that lives within us that wants us to deny the fact that Jesus loves us deeply. Some of us have carried guilt and shame our whole lives. And that guilt and that shame have separated us from understanding the true love of Christ. Jesus wept for them. He wept for the city. He wept because he knew that they would deny him. Not only that, he wept because he knew that what he desired to be, they did not desire to receive. And so Jesus deeply loved these people. Jesus deeply loves us today. Jesus deeply loves your neighbor, your children, your grandchildren. He loves everyone you've ever met. He deeply loves them. Verse 42, and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will bash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Isaiah 53, written hundred years, hundreds of years prior to this, declares exactly what was to happen. Do you know every child was raised in Jerusalem to understand the book of Isaiah, to read the book of Isaiah, to memorize the book of Isaiah, to understand that there is Isaiah 53 is something I am to know, I am to focus on, I am to recognize. And yet in reading that as a child, even the most intellectual, the most educated Jewish leaders of the time did not understand the meaning of what Isaiah had prophesied because they did not recognize Jesus. And Jesus said, if you only knew, if you only understood, this has not been a secret. The prophets of old have declared in detail what must happen. That there must be a sacrifice of a perfect lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of man, that a perfect sacrifice is coming in the form of a perfect man that will show up And he will be denied, and he will be crucified, and then he will rise to bring freedom. And so this is a historical truth. This was a prophecy that had been proclaimed, something that should have been known but was not seen clearly. And Jesus says, because you do not see this, there is is tragedy that is yet to be before you. There is absolute tragedy in your future. And so when we look at this event, it only applies to us eternally in the the nature of that if we do not receive Christ, there's great tragedy ahead of us. For those who do not know Christ have not received the gift of salvation. For those who will not be seen in the eyes 
of, of Christ's blood and sacrifice, that they have been transformed, that they have been covered, that the gift has been given and received. For those who do not receive the gift, there is tragedy that lies in front of them. But not only for them, there was tragedy for the Jewish people of this time. There was tragedy for those who lived in Jerusalem at this time. It is an amazing historical account. In 66, 66, possibly 30 years after Jesus' death resurrection, the Jewish people decided they didn't want to be under Rome anymore in, in Jerusalem. And so there was an uprising, and they took over the city of Jerusalem. And the Jews then controlled Jerusalem. And this was in the time of Nero. And Nero uh, wanted to destroy the Jews. He wanted to decimate them, take them, and, and completely wipe them out because they did this. But unfortunately, fortunately for the Jews, Nero dies. And so for about four years, there's, there's just some turmoil within the Roman leadership. And finally, the Roman government says, we're going to send an army, not just an army, 60,000 units of armed soldiers to Jerusalem, and we are going to destroy it under the rule of Titus. Now, you need to understand something. For us, we look and we see the Wailing Wall and we see Israel and we see a lot of historical locations, but it doesn't mean the same thing it meant to them. To them, it was a wonder of the world. The size, the immense size of the temple was, was, was mind-boggling. It was a wonder of the world. The temple in its interior was six football fields in size. The walls at places were 16 feet thick with blocks that are weighed up to 400 tons. And they were laid with precision so that they would be exactly side by side. The walls around the temple were 20 stories high. 20 stories high, 16 feet thick. During Passover, we're told that close to 2 million people would, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. The, the temple was made to house that many people at one time. And so Rome came in. Now when Jesus says this, he says not a single stone will be left up. No one could possibly imagine, no one could possibly fathom that this one of the wonders of the world would be decimated to that level. There is no way the size and the immensity of this structure could ever be destroyed in the way you're saying it. It was absurd to those that heard this, the possibility that the temple could be destroyed to this level. It was just not thinkable. And yet Jesus says it clearly. He states it to his disciples. He states it to the people. Not only will you be destroyed and devastated, not a single stone will be left standing here in this place. In August of 70, that's exactly what happened. Titus came in. Now, they should have had food. They should have been fine. But there was infighting inside the temple, and they burned their own food. And they were starving already, and they were fighting each other. And by the end of it, one Josephus, an author, a writer that gives us this historical account, he tells us that 1.1 million people died, and 100,000 were taken captive as slaves. 
and that to show the power and the might of the Roman Empire, they knocked every single stone to the ground, not leaving a single stone to represent any power or any authority of the Jews. Do you realize in 70 AD, the year of our Lord, was the end of the sacrifice for the Jewish people. And since then, they have not been able to sacrifice, which by their own law is required for the forgiveness of sins. Since 70 AD, Jesus said this was to happen. This is exactly what happened. It was devastating. And has been devastating ever since for every Jewish person as they look back and remember this. If you travel to Rome, you'll see the Colosseum. In front of the Colosseum, there's the Ark of Titus. And on the Ark of Titus, if you look at the engravement, there's engravement of slaves in chains and shackles being pulled along. And behind them is the menorah that they had taken from the Holy of Holies. That this very day, one of the greatest places that people go as tourists to see is this Ark of Titus that recollects this 70 AD when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And as they brought them back to Rome as slaves, that the world would remember that the temple was destroyed. That the Jews were gone. And this is exactly the tragedy that Jesus declares as he is going into Jerusalem. He is entering into Jerusalem and he is preparing to die for the sins of mankind. You know, he says there's an even greater tragedy than the temple. There's a greater tragedy than the fall of the temple. And that's a man or a woman or a child being separated from God eternally. That that is the greatest tragedy in the history of the world. The greatest tragedy is the rejection of Christ. We reject him today as a culture. Many people reject Christ, not in word, but in deed. Reject Christ as Savior. Reject Christ as Lord. Resist the gift of salvation. Resist repentance. Resist belief. The greatest tragedy for any of us, the greatest tragedy for any of us, the greatest tragedy for anyone we know is the rejection of Christ. That is the greatest tragedy there can be. Do you know what the second greatest tragedy I believe is? The second greatest tragedy is an empty Christian life. The second greatest tragedy is knowing the truth, but not living the truth. Knowing that you're a child of God, knowing that you have nothing to fear, knowing that God wants to use your life that he wants you to love him with everything you have and he wants you to love others. To know that you have been set free from the sin that so easily entangles. Know that you have victory in him. The greatest, second greatest tragedy I believe is when we live as though we are not saved. We live as though we are still slaves to sin. We live as though the world is stronger. The world has more to offer. The world is better. At any moment when a Christian lives as though the world is the answer and Christ is second best or Christ isn't good enough or Christ's way is not the best way. Anytime we do that as followers of Christ, that is a tragedy amongst tragedies. 
But just like the people, just like the people in Jerusalem, just like when he was entering, do you realize the moment that Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, the moment that he is entering Jerusalem, they are partying, they are singing, they are celebrating, they are laughing, they are enjoying life. Because they couldn't conceive a tragedy was on the horizon. They couldn't conceive the tragedy was yet to come. And so many, so many live as though life will always be as it is, that nothing will ever change, that life will just keep going and going. That is so contrary to the, weak, the, the words of God. You were appointed once to die, and there is judgment. This world is but a vapor. It is here for a very small time, and then it is gone. And for so many, so many, tragedy is what waits. And it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be tragedy. It doesn't have to be tragic. It can be victory. It can be hope. It can be grace. The saddest part of this great tragedy is that it doesn't need to be. We choose it. We follow it. We believe it. And we're deceived by it. And so how do we avoid this epic tragedy? How do we help others avoid living a tragic life? I believe there are four simple things we can do. First, receive. Have you truly received Christ into your life? I've been in the church world my whole life, and I know there's one thing about the church life. It's really easy to play a character of Christian. It's very easy to talk a talk and make people think something about you. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy because you know it, but you don't have it. Having it is every single day of your life. Receiving the full filling of the Holy Spirit, knowing that you are his. Receiving the power that he gives you in your life. Receiving the knowledge and wisdom and discernment that the Holy Spirit gives you. That's what it is to be a follower. That is what it is to be a child. To go to the Father daily and ask for wisdom and discernment and care and protection. And once you receive it, you believe it. You believe it. You know how you know what you believe? By what you do. You do what you believe. If you believe in yourself, then everything you do is for yourself. When you believe in the Lord, then what you do is for the Lord. Belief is not as much about what you say as what you do. And when you do those two things, you receive and you believe, then something happens. It's called you belong. You belong to him. You belong to his family. You belong to a family that loves each other and desires to grow. A family that welcomes new members regularly. 
A family that celebrates the wins of each other, not criticizes the wins of each other. A family that uplifts and supports and walks along and and, and walks in when everyone's walking out. That's the family we belong to. That's the family he wants you to belong to. And in doing that, in doing that, you become. Do you know what you become? You become the very person that God put you on earth to be. You become what you were born to be. You know, some of us have been deceived and we, were, we believe that we were born to be whatever our profession was. I was born to be a doctor. I was born to be a teacher. I was, those are things that you can do along this journey, but that's not what you were born to be. You were born to be a child of God. You were born to be part of his family. You were, bo- you were born to worship God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love people like he loves people. That is what you were born for and that is what you can become. So for you to become that, what is the next step? Are you twice born? Every one of us in this room has been born physically. I can tell. Can't tell if we've been born spiritually. That's something that you do in your heart. Have you been born spiritually? Are you alive spiritually? Are you in the family of Christ that you've been born into spiritually? He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be born anew. Your spirit will be born alive. Have you done that in your life? Is it part of who you are? And if so, if so, I believe God talks to you all the time. I believe God talks to us constantly. It's just we're really distracted by the world to listen. We're distracted by our own thoughts. We're distracted by the world's thoughts. But God's talking to us. What is he saying to you right now? 